Good morning, y'all. My name is Brandon. I am delighted that y'all have joined us for worship today. Scott mentioned those of you who are new, maybe haven't been here before, welcome to you as well. And anyone that may be worshiping online that has not worshiped with us before, welcome to you. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning as we continue in our vision series. This is the third week of five. We are in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents. I used to encourage people to find the book of the Bible by using their table of contents. I would say rock the talk. That was quite stupid now that I think about it. It didn't make much sense, but like TOC, table of contents. Anyway. You know, this has been a fun series. Topical series are different, obviously, than going straight through a book of the Bible. And we do both here. Um, we do both. And at the first of the, of the year, we'll be in the book of John, the Gospel of John, for a long, long time. So I'm looking forward to that. But topical series allow us to focus on specific um, areas of ministry that we focus on and use different parts of the Bible for that. So that's why we are dancing around now. Uh, I would be. I do try not to always use sports examples, but it is a it's a very fun morning in the Owen household or a fun night last night. Uh, I grew up in the '90s. I was I was born in 1980, so uh, child of the '80s, and then the '90s is what I remember the most. And some things that were just true in the '90s uh, that you may not know if you're genera- uh, Generation Z or even younger is that the University of Tennessee used to always beat Alabama. Did you, did you know that in the 90s? That just always happened. And now um, I, saw, I saw something funny this week. One of our, one of our folks uh, um, put out on Instagram, one of the social media said, a Tennessee fan has never tweeted about beating Alabama. It's pretty good, and it's funny because Twitter wasn't. Anyway, it's just been that long. Another thing that was characteristic of the 90s was uh, I was I was a huge baseball fan, good, you know, decent high school baseball player and loved the game of baseball. And so I grew up in a, a Cincinnati Reds household. My dad was a huge big red machine fan in the 70s and we were Reds fans until and Nashville's a weird place. You know, you get Cardinals fans. I'm sure there's some of y'all here and I don't understand y'all, but I know you're out there. And then there's Reds fans, which we were, so I have more sympathy there. But then there, there's a huge pocket of us here who love the Atlanta Braves. And that is what happened in the early 90s in my household. My dad just had a vision from the Lord and said, you know what? We're going to be Braves fans because this is going to be really good. And it was really good for about nine years leading up to 1999 when they went to the World Series after winning in 95, playing the Yankees. And the whole thing was said, is this going to be the team of the decade? Whoever wins this series? And the Yankees won four straight games and baseball has been dead in Atlanta ever since. Until last night. And it was so, so fun to watch the Braves get back to the World Series. And we are very, very excited about that. Um, Sports, like much in our world, um, unites us in some way. Sometimes it causes us to be a little mean and ridiculous and throw mustard onto a football field. But sports can unite us. And we, part of going back to our values here and, and, and doing this for these five weeks is to, uh, has nothing to do with sports, but it has everything to do with how we might can come to a greater understanding of what unites us. 
what it is that has brought us to this place here in 2021 as the church at Harpeth Heights and the church at large throughout the world and what it is that binds us because what is leading out in the narratives in the world today, particularly in our time and space here in America, in the South, is that which divides us. Very easily riled up these days. And we need to get back to what it is that unites us because as I've told you before and I'm confident it's true, there is much more that brings us together and binds us than divides us. And it's much more fun to focus on that which does unite us. So I love that we are coming together on Sunday mornings and have been for over a year now after a pandemic that left us not meeting for quite some time. I love that this gathering is growing, that many of you are still you're, you're, you're trickling back together. Some of you are still worshiping at home, and that is fine, but it is becoming more like we remember it. But our particular value today is, is going to assess for us, help us understand how things aren't returning to whatever normal was and how they may not. So back up three weeks ago, we looked at the gospel first and always, that which is foundational to our, our faith and our, our being together, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it means for um, what we believe and, and what God has done to save us, literally to bring us from death to life, but then also what it means for the way that we live today and how it is that we go about our lives in order to draw others to Jesus. We, we live out the gospel, which is first and always. And last week we looked at how we are uniquely called specifically to live out this gospel and proclaim it into the world so that others will be drawn to Jesus. And today we're looking at how we intentionally innovate, how we are intentionally innovative in how we do proclaim the gospel and live it out in the world. So for me, because intentional innovation, it, it is for us as individuals, yes, and you as an individual, but first and foremost, it's for us as a church. So we're looking at our particular church in this particular setting, in this particular time, and what it means for us to go forward as a church. And so for me, I look back at what church has always been. And, and I was a kid who was raised in the church. I was a preacher's kid. I was there three times a week. You heard, you heard I was there every day of the week, actually, because we lived 50 yards from the church, right across the gravel parking lot. And my dad, no kidding, he used to, every day, he would back his Honda Accord from our side of the gravel parking lot into the other side of the gravel parking lot so that everybody that drove by would know that he was at work. Because <laughs> it was a small, small town, and they wanted to know that Brother Bill was getting it done in his office and working. And so he would literally do that. I sang in the choir in the church that I grew up in as a, as a student, as a kid, um, almost every week. There was that, that short period where I had a girlfriend and I wanted to make sure I kept that girlfriend. So I went from the choir to the pews to sit with her because I thought I was supposed to, but then that ended. And so I went back to the, uh, to the choir and we wore beige and green robes and they sure were ugly. But we had them because choirs wore robes. And maybe you noticed this morning that our choir didn't have a robe on, but we had them and that's just what you did. And what they represented at their best was that the choir was unified, that no one person in the choir was greater than anyone else. 
even though they were. I sat by somebody who never learned to sing very well. And I couldn't hear music well at all. I, I had an okay voice, but I didn't ever learn to hear parts. And so it was just all unison for me all the time. So I wasn't a very good choir member, but I was consistent because my parents always made me be there. The unity in the choir was about singing and glorifying God as one. And no one stood out in a robe except for that man on the front row who fell asleep during every one of dad's sermons. You know, the robes were a good example for me as I got older of something that easily became something that we do that we've always done. We do it because we've always done it. And a lot of about church for me as a child, it was rhythmic. It was just what we did. Now, you know, yeah, that was true for me because I was there so often, but a lot of people were there so often. I mean, you look at what I experienced, and many of you maybe as well, there was RAs, GAs, Bible drill, Wednesday night fellowship meals, discipleship training on Sunday night, Sunday school, and Sunday mornings. And I'm not being critical. I am so grateful for my immersion into the church. I learned the scriptures. I learned the scriptures from the hymns. I learned the scriptures listening to my dad, who was actually, he's such a good man and was a really, is a really good preacher. We could have been doing so much worse. But I also look back and see how we got stuck in these rhythms. And I didn't learn to ask the why behind them. And now, over the last 20 months, our hand has been forced a bit because we have lost some of these rhythms. Churches everywhere are lamenting more and more empty pews. And I realize I'm talking to the ones who are, who are here and some of you who haven't returned yet. But who knows who this will get into the hands of. But it, we must reckon with the fact that we are not worshiping together as often as we were. However, I am going to push back on the narrative that you may have heard or believe that the pandemic is what has caused this. Mike Glenn has said numerous times over the last 20 months that the pandemic did not break anything as much as it revealed that which was already broken. You know, my reality as a kid in the church, it was not uncommon for some of our kids to get a certificate at the end of the year saying that they literally were in Sunday school every week that year. But now we live in what is a much more global world. I matriculated to a city that is growing by leaps and bounds far different from the town in which I grew up in. Our reality that my kids, that your kids are living in, is a much more global, much more transient world. Before the pandemic, the average church member was actually attending church fewer than two times a month. Did you know that? And now it's even less. I'm just telling you how things are. And so we begin to think about things that are important to us about, well, how do we do the online streaming even better? When we started this, we didn't even have the ability to broadcast our services online. Well, we accelerated that very quickly and then we were able to do so. And then the camera angle was way in the back. And so we brought in another cam, a couple of more cameras so that we can have spiffy new angles. And now you can see both sides of my face. And that is so cool. But then we realized when we started watching it that what it sounds like is nowhere near what it sounds like in the room. 
And we started hearing that from others. I heard one person tell me, man, I sure am glad I showed up because that's totally different. Because what it takes to make it sound in the room for you who are in here like it sounds on the computer or vice versa is, is a tremendous amount of technology and money and time and effort and people. And we're just not there yet. It has been quite an endeavor and it has rocked us to try to figure out how to do this. All because it is so much less common for people to gather together in the room. Isn't that interesting? I'm letting you in on the stuff that I think about a hundred hours a week. What's not changed? The mission. Those who are lost and lonely. Those who are without Christ. That has not changed. They are still lost. They are still lonely. They are still without Christ. And it has not changed that we have still been set apart to carry that message of the gospel into the world. Down the street first and then across the globe. And this mission is what Paul is referencing in our text today in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So if you'll turn to me there, we're going to begin reading. Turn with me. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Hear God's word. Paul says, although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may be every So by every possible means, save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. A couple of things that might be problematic if you are hearing this for the first time. Maybe this is a very familiar passage to you. Um, If you don't know who Paul is, Paul is one of our, the church's greatest apostles who is connected with Christ, who actually was able to see Christ and then carry the gospel message into the world. He was a tremendous missionary and evangelist and wrote much of our New Testament. And even Paul has some problematic phrasing here in our passage. As we see right from the bat, he uses the word slave, which we can substitute servant for in some translations, including the English English Standard Version, does do that. But think of servant there. Um, and, uh, another thing is how maybe you read this and you hear Paul saying, I'm just going to become, it doesn't matter what I'm rooted in. I'm going to become like anything I need to, to proclaim the gospel. That's not exactly what he's saying either. Paul is rooted in the gospel. And then from there going in to what he is explaining here about the tactics, the, the way he goes about sharing the gospel. And then what might also be problematic, at least it gives me pause, is that 
Paul is choosing to say, if you read it, um, a cursory reading, you may see Paul saying that he himself is saving when we know that it is God who saves through Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that as well. We learn that from so much of his other reading. But Paul is being quite literal here that he is so hopeful and determined for those who do not yet know Christ to go from being lost to being found. That's his very story. And it was so important to him. So to win some, to save some, this is Paul uh, living out of this vernacular of lost becoming found. And some of us, including me at times, has a problem with the word lost. Who are we to say that someone is lost? Well, I have some authority to say it because I remember when I was lost and I know how I can still teeter to the edge of being lost even now under Christ's authority. So it is not far from reasonable in my mind for one to be lost. But it's offensive to consider someone lost, isn't it? Or can be by the world standards, but it's not offensive in this way for us as the church if we have the proper perspective of it. Lost things are loved things, especially by God. And if we can operate from there, I believe we can lovingly explain the gospel and explain why our values should drive us to help people understand that they are lost and that they do not want to be lost any longer. A lot of this was, was crystallized for me in seminary when we read a particular book by a guy named a seminary professor from Fuller Theological Seminary by the name of Todd Bolsinger. He wrote a book called Canoeing the Mountains. Yes, you heard me right. Canoeing the Mountains. Christian Leadership in uncharted territory. And Dr. Bolsinger, in this book, he began with the illustration of Lewis and Clark, who you remember as explorers. And Lewis and Clark, if you remember, reached the Continental Divide out west, and they expected to find a river that would help them just paddle quite neatly all the way to the Pacific Ocean. What they saw instead were the Rocky Mountains, So they had to change course pretty quickly. Now, folks, we don't know what we don't know. But I do feel like as your friend and leader and someone who thinks about these things a lot, I do feel like there are many similarities to what the church, what those following and being formed by Jesus are facing today and what Lewis and Clark experienced standing at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. And it's going to require our best effort to figure out the way forward. We don't know what we don't know. Surprises can come often. Bolsinger says this, We must become people who are humble learners and who will work with new kinds of experts in a day to learn new ways and new collaborations in order to keep moving. Now, this is true, but don't miss how this was also true in the time that Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. That is what he's saying in verses 19 through 23. I'm going to seek to understand who I'm talking to. I'm going to seek to understand your perspective. I'm going to seek to whether or not my foot's the same size as yours, slip it into your shoes, metaphorically. Character, you may have heard. I, I, one of the, there's so many definitions of character. One of my favorites is that character, our character is defined by how we treat those who the world says can do nothing for us. 
namely the powerless, the poor. But what God wants us to know, what Jesus knew, is that the poor and powerless have much to teach us. Think about it. Those who suffer the most are constantly looking for new ways forward. They're constantly imagining how things can be different. They're constantly forced, if they're honest, if they're trying to be creative. Bolsinger goes on. He says, I believe that this is a model for the fact that the church will move forward the more we're able to embrace that people who did not have power and privilege in our church are actually the experts. That we may have things to learn from folks who, who don't just consider things the way they've always been considered. Do you see how that sounds like good practice? The different perspective, the unique perspective, the alternative opinion. And by the way, if we aren't, if we by practice aren't listening to each other because we're assuming that we're divided and we don't like each other, we're going to have a hard time hearing those good ideas from one another. If our institutions, our schools, our churches don't create places for those who are not formed completely by the church, to be able to just to have a voice within the church, but also have influence and, and collaborative authority within the church, we're not going to move forward. Now, all of this sits on the foundation of us caring whether or not we move forward. If we're happy how we are, it's all good. We'll just keep on keeping on. What Bolsinger and many others have impressed upon me and what I quite honestly believe is one of my callings with you is to help us see how it's just not the case. It is incumbent upon us to be creative, not just be creative, want to be creative. And here's what Bolsinger hones in on. Because it's hard to be creative. It's hard to keep this at the forefront of our minds because life is really hard. So much loss characterizes our existence. You may have a really hard week and it may or may not be harder than last week. I get it. Loss characterizes so much about what goes on. But loss and learning, being open to learn from that loss, from, from, from any experience, quite honestly, that those are central to our faith. And we have lost so much over the last 20 months. Not just here in the church, but so many of us have in society. But Lewis and Clark were not deterred when they looked up at the Rocky Mountains and did not find a river. But it was not going to do them any good to paddle harder they had to intentionally innovate. They had to adapt. And the key to adapting, the key to intentional innovation is going back to our deepest core value. Look what Paul says in verse 22 in our text. He says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Intentional innovation means for us that we are not necessarily chasing down constantly the newest, hottest tactic in how to do church. And Mike Glenn says this very well. Now, we may lead out on some things when the Holy Spirit impresses us to, 
but we will not in general. We're going to be more measured. Perhaps you've heard of slow businesses. Have you listened to this? You know what a slow business is? It takes a cue from slow living. It's about taking a day at a time, planning for only the most necessary things, not making money and fame the measurements of success. It's about intentional and meaningful business strategies. It's about putting people before business. Now, forgive me for selecting a secular strategy to make a sermon point, but that sounds taking it a day at a time, planning for necessary things, not making money or fame the measurement of success, people over business. That sounds a lot like a good practice for us and how we think about innovation as we continually are brought back to our core values, the gospel first and always, that we are all uniquely called to proclaim the gospel and that we are called to be creative, intentionally innovative in how we do so. But the gospel does not change. And it occurs to me that I need to be reminded of it occasionally. And I imagine you do too. That Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us, is God's son who came to show us what God is like and not just show us in how he lived, although he did, but to die. So that we won't have to. And in dying, he overcame death and rose after three days and appeared to us to to give a representation of not being dead anymore. And then he ascended into heaven to be with the Father, but he did not leave us alone. He left us with the Holy Spirit who came 50 days later in Pentecost, who's still with us today so that we know that we are not alone and that God is with us, seeking to change us so that others are drawn to him as well. And the gospel goes further to help us understand, and please don't miss this, that yes, it demands our obedience. Yes, it demands action from us, that we will live out our faith and actually put it into practice so that others will be drawn to Jesus. But we don't do that in order to gain God's affection. If you understand the gospel, you know that you can do nothing to gain God's affection. We are not obedient obedient to God in order that God will love us. God does. We are obedient to God because God loves us. Obedient because. And we must understand that distinction if we are to communicate it well because it's true for everyone else as well, not just for us. Paul is doing his best to figure out where folks are coming from so he can explain that very truth. Explain that very gospel to anyone, to everyone. He doesn't view his freedom, Paul tells us, to pursue his own interest. Instead, he voluntarily sacrifices his freedom to make himself a servant to everyone. Break that down. How apt are we to put others before ourselves? Do we consider our own interests before others? Jesus did. Paul's trying to. He's not Jesus, but he's understanding that he's supposed to. And through the power of the Holy Spirit in him, he believes that he can, at least more often than he would on his own, that's for sure. And then true freedom, according to Paul, is freedom to love, to give ourselves to others. In Galatians chapter 5, he says it this way, you, my sisters and brothers, were called to be free, and we are. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another, humbly, in love, 
And the word serve here means to be beholden to one another. And that taps into what we're trying to understand in our, in our vision of helping people understand what Scott talked about in our welcome that we want you to want to be members because we want the membership in this type of place just to scream what it actually is, that we are taking care of one another, that we are putting each other's interests before our own, that this is a place where you want to be beholden to one another. That our unique calling is encouraged in each other by each other because we are practicing putting each other before each other. I think I just said that. Intentionally innovative begins with our roots, begins with the basics. We have to go back to our core values of loving one another well, of seeing Christ when we look at each other, because it's the only way we're going to be able to see Christ when we look into anybody's eyes throughout the world. And we're getting back to mission journeys. We are. We're, we're going to go throughout the world and we can't take Christ throughout the world for, for a number of reasons. Jesus is already there for one. We never have been able to just, that, that got us in a lot of trouble where we would go on these volunteerism mission trips and think we were, had all the answers and we're taking them there. This week in Haiti, 17 missionaries were abducted. I've spent a couple of months in Haiti over the last seven years. It is so scary and sad to see stories like that. It breaks my heart and it breaks my heart even further to see much of the public backlash after when we get criticized as missionaries because some of us don't take it seriously. And we do go on these trips to try to take a a syrupy gospel into a place where we're assuming that it is not. Christ is everywhere. It's what Paul is helping us understand in what he's writing to the church in Corinth here. I am going to look you in the eyes wherever you are, wherever you're from, whoever you are, whether you live down the street from me or you live in Haiti or on the other side of the world. And I'm going to seek to see Christ in you. I'm going to seek to understand what I can learn from you. And I'm going to pray that over time, however long it takes, that I'm going to have the opportunity to explain to you what matters most to me. And I pray that what matters most to us is the gospel. And that is what comes out over time when we do have those relationships with one another. And that they can be with any and everybody. That's intentional innovation. We will be innovative, adaptive, willing to change. We will embrace our losses and be eager to learn from them and others, all others. Because our success is not defined by worldly standards. But it's defined by whether or not we're drawing people to Christ and leaving them believing and living out the gospel. One of my favorite preachers, I tell you all the time, is Fred Craddock. And he, he pastored a small church in Georgia for a long, long time. And they went through the process of not meeting anymore on Sunday nights at some point. But they, it took a long time. And I'm sure Harper Heights at some point in our history, and some of you here could tell me when that happened, that we, we you know, stopped meeting on Sunday nights. My dad used to preach Wednesday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. He worked so much harder than I do. Dr. Craddock sat there on Sunday night. His wife and two kids were down on the front row, and nobody else was there. And the... He asked the chairman of the deacons in the middle of the week the next week, why do y'all keep voting on having Sunday night service when it's just me and my wife and children there? And the deacon said, well, I just love it that whatever I'm doing, whether I'm playing golf or 
out on my boat that I know that my preacher is up there in the pulpit preaching the gospel. We got to all do it. I'm not trying to deflect my call and my purpose here. I'm going to preach it with all my heart and soul any and every day of the week. But the difference now is we have to all do it. It's always been true. Paul didn't say this to brag about how great he was doing. He said this to motivate those in Corinth to be more about the gospel with whoever they were around. You guys like telling people stuff. I couldn't wait to talk to the Braves about, about the Braves with you this morning. What's it going to take for it to be the gospel that comes out of us? That's what I'm praying for. That's the intentional innovation I want to be a part of the most. Let's pray.